One of the best books in print today is a book written by J. Oswald Sanders titled Spiritual Leadership. Allow me to quote from him as we begin the message this morning. He says, and I quote, The supernatural nature of the church demands a leadership that rises above the human. And yet, has there ever been a greater dearth of God-anointed and God-mastered men to meet that crucial need? The overriding need of the church, if it is to discharge its obligation to the rising generation, is for a leadership that is authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Spiritual leaders, however, are not made by election or appointment, by men or any combination of men, nor by conferences or synods. Only God can make them. Simply holding a position of importance does not constitute one a leader, nor do taking courses in leadership or even resolving to become a leader, end quote. If it is true that spiritual leadership is that important and that rare, then we need to understand how God makes spiritual leaders. Simon Peter is a great example. Simon was the name his parents had given him at birth. He was a fisherman by trade along with his brother Andrew. We know that he was married because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus healed his wife's mother. Also, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, the Apostle Paul says that Peter took his wife with him on his missionary journeys. So even though there are those today who tell us that Peter was the first pope and was not married, that is not true biblically and scripturally it cannot be supported. Peter was married. We know from the gospel accounts that Simon had a problem being consistent. He vacillated, he shifted. So to help remedy that problem, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. Because the Greek term Petros, or Peter, means stone. Cephas is Aramaic, is the Aramaic name for stone. So if you contemplate Simon's name, or Peter's name, it can can be confusing, because he is called by three different titles or names, Cephas, Simon, and Peter. The best way to understand it is to realize that Cephas and Peter are the same name. Cephas is Aramaic, Peter is Greek. Simon is the name his parents had given him. Jesus changed his name to Cephas, or Peter, and this forced Peter to think about how the Lord wanted him to be. The Lord wanted him to be solid as a rock, firm and consistent, not shifting and not vacillating. Even after his name was changed, the name Simon was always used in two different cases in the gospel accounts. One, it was always used as a secular identification. In other words, Simon's house, Simon's boat, Simon's fishing partners, etc. Anytime the gospel account refers to any secular identification, it uses the term Simon. But there is a second time when the term Simon is used to refer to Peter in the Gospels, and that is whenever the Lord wanted to get his attention. Whenever the Lord wanted to confront Peter that he wasn't being what he should be. Whenever the Lord wanted to remind him that he was going astray or that he wasn't really on target, Jesus would refer to him as Simon 
to get his attention. To show you this, look with me by way of introduction at Luke chapter 5. This is where we're going to begin this morning, at Luke chapter 5. And we'll spend some time in the gospel accounts getting a portrait of Peter before we turn to his actual letter. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. We read, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them, and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Peter was frustrated at this point because Jesus was asking him to do two things that were totally contrary to what they did in those days. Number one, Jesus asked him to go out into the deep. You don't catch fish in the Sea of Galilee in the deep. You catch them in the shallow water so the nets can enclose them and trap them. You don't go out in the deepest part because the fish can just swim under the net. The nets don't go down far enough. The Sea of Galilee is very deep out in the middle. The second thing that had to frustrate Peter is you don't fish in the Sea of Galilee during the day because the hottest part of the day is between 1 and 4 and the fish go out into the deep water where it's cooler. But Jesus said, Simon, we're going out now in the middle of the day when it is hot and we're going into the deep water to catch some fish. Now I'm sure that at this point Peter thought, Lord, I think you should stick to ministry and let us take care of the fishing. But because you have asked, we'll go ahead and do it. So we read in verse 6, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in another boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, it is very frightening to be in a boat that is beginning to sink. But I'll tell you something that's even more frightening, and that is to be standing in the same boat with God. And that reality hit Peter. He understood what was going on here. So in the midst of all of this chaos and this hurried, frantic pace, Peter realized he is standing in the same boat with God. Only God could do something like this. And so we read in verse 8, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here we see Peter referred to as Simon in two different ways. Once, because it was a secular identification when referring to his boat. And the second time, because the Lord was ready to confront an attitude in Peter that wasn't right, probably the attitude that says, Lord, I know more than you know, but Jesus was getting him to understand, Peter, you need to do what I say regardless of what you think. It's kind of funny to note that the Apostle John almost always calls him Simon Peter. John was Peter's closest friend, 
And it's almost as if he could never figure out when he was going to be Simon and when he was going to be Peter. So just to solve it, he called him Simon Peter all the time. That way he never missed it. He always got it right. In fact, there's a sense in which you can outline Peter's life just by his name. First, he was Simon. That's who he was naturally. Then he was Simon Peter in transition. And eventually he became what the Lord wanted him to be, Peter. He became solid, firm, consistent. How did the Lord take this man and make him into a spiritual leader? There are three ingredients or three components. Jesus took someone with the right qualities and put him in the right situations and taught him the right principles. Let's consider each of these individually. First of all, the Lord saw in Peter the right kind of material for leadership. In fact, Peter was probably a leader before anyone recognized it. So what are the right kind of qualities for a leader? One is inquisitiveness. The first thing to notice in a leader is whether or not he asks questions. People who don't ask questions don't make good leaders because they don't think about problems and solutions. They don't wrestle with the tough issues. They're satisfied with the way things are. Effective leaders are never satisfied with the status quo. They're always asking questions to find out how to be more effective. In the Gospels, it's interesting to note, Peter asks more questions than all the other apostles combined. Let me show you a few examples. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Go from Luke back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, verse 15. Matthew 15, 15. This is after Jesus had told a parable or had made a little parabolic statement. And in verse 15, then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. It was Peter who asked for further explanation. He was basically asking a question. Lord, I don't understand what this means. Explain this parable to us. Look at chapter 18 for another example. Chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him, that would be Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? After the Lord taught on forgiveness in the previous verses, it was Peter who was wrestling with the practical ramifications of what the Lord taught. So Peter asked the question. He is the one repeatedly asking the questions in the Gospels. Look at chapter 19, the very next chapter, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter was a thinker. He was always asking questions in his own mind and always asking questions to the Lord. That's a necessary quality for effective spiritual leaders. Another necessary quality is initiative. Peter not only asked a lot of questions, but he also answered the ones asked by the Lord in most cases. Let me illustrate this. Go back to Matthew 16, just a few pages back to the left. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, 
Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When the Lord threw out a question, it was Peter who took the initiative to answer it. Peter was always taking the initiative. Sometimes it got him in trouble, like the time he stepped forward and cut off the guy's ear in the garden. On that occasion, he needed to be restrained. But Peter was a man of action. He took the initiative. The third necessary quality for leadership is involvement. Leaders are often right where the action is. To illustrate this in Peter's life, turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 20. From the first Gospel to the fourth Gospel, John chapter 20. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And John tells us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out. Notice this involvement. He's going to go check it out. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. John had to put that in there. He was a little bit younger than Peter. He was faster. So he outruns Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now the, the, the point I want you to notice in this story is that Peter went in first, even though John arrived first. There was always a cloud of dust around Peter. He was a man of involvement. Peter had the right qualities for leadership. Then, secondly, the Lord put him in the right situations. The Lord put him in the right life experiences. The Lord put Peter in some life-changing situations. Back up to Matthew chapter 16 once again. Go back to Matthew 16. We read part of this story a moment ago where Jesus asked in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was a very important event in Peter's life. Jesus was letting Peter know that God wanted to use his mouth. He was letting Peter know that God could speak through him. Verse 18, And I say to you that you are Petras, and on this Petra, two different Greek words, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now what does it mean that Peter will have the keys of the kingdom? Well, who was it that preached the very first sermon to the Jewish people to invite them into the kingdom? It was Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
And who was the apostle who opened the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles? It was Peter in Acts chapter 10 with the household of Cornelius. Peter unlocked the door to the kingdom of heaven to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. That was his unique role. Acts 2, Acts chapter 10. And Jesus was letting Peter know that God was going to use him. So Peter was probably feeling real sharp about now. Maybe even a little bit high on himself. Verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. No way, Lord, you're not going to go this right. You're not going to do that. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What a lesson to learn. The Lord was telling Peter that he was just as available to the devil as he was to God. It's important to realize that the greater potential a person has to be used by God, the greater potential he has to be used by Satan. Peter needed to learn that to be an effective leader. Look at Matthew chapter 26, a few pages over to the right for another life lesson, another life experience that had a profound impact on Peter. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear. That is not so much using profanity, but called down curses on his head. Swear, in other words, may God curse me and strike me dead. I swear I do not know this man. That's what it means when he was cursing and swearing. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. This situation undoubtedly had a tremendous impact on Peter's life. For a third example, look at John 21, a third life experience. And this is, these are just samples of, of many that Peter had. John chapter 21, verse 15. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Jesus is going to meet with Peter to restore him and recommission him into ministry. Verse 15, John 21. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Maybe more than these fish? Because Peter had just gone back to fishing. Or maybe he's saying more than these disciples because that's what Peter had claimed. You remember the night before the crucifixion? Hey, it doesn't matter, Jesus, if all of these guys forsake you. I would never forsake you. He was basically saying, I love you more than they do. So maybe Jesus is referring back to that. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter uses a different word. There's a little word play here in the Greek text. 
Jesus said, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I like you a lot. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you like me a lot? He chose Peter's words here, his, his word. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you or like you a lot. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three. How many times did the Lord ask Peter to reaffirm his love? Three. This conversation had to have had a lasting impact in Peter's life. Those are just three of the situations that Peter went through in order to be shaped by the Lord. So when God makes a leader, he takes someone with the right qualities, puts him in the right situations, and then thirdly, he teaches in the right principles. Turn with me to Peter's own letter, 1 Peter, to see some of the life lessons that the Lord taught Peter. Here in this letter, we see some of the things the Lord taught Peter. I'll give you just a a sample list. It's not an exhaustive list. What are some of the principles a leader needs to learn? Well, one is submission. It's very easy for leaders to feel they're accountable to no one. They're they're above rules. They're above, uh, you know, all of this type of thing. So Peter needed to learn submission. Back in Matthew 17, the Lord told Peter to go fishing. You remember that occasion? And that the first fish he caught would have a coin in its mouth that Peter should use to pay their taxes. Peter may have thought, hey, hey, we're in the kingdom business. We don't have to bother with man's rules. That's this tax stuff. But Jesus taught Peter to be submissive. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, notice what Peter wrote, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God. Peter learned the importance of submission, the importance of submission. A second lesson Peter needed to learn was self-control. I mentioned earlier that in John 18, Peter cut off the ear of a man named Malchus. Let me tell you something. Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming for the head. He completely lost control. But Peter evidently learned self-control. In chapter 2 of this letter, in verse 21, he says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter learned self-control. Another very important thing leaders need to learn is the importance of love. Leaders tend to be goal-oriented rather than people-oriented. So the Lord taught Peter the importance of love. Peter, remember the words that Jesus had spoken in John 13, 34, love one another as I have loved you. It's quite obvious Peter learned that lesson. Look at what he wrote in chapter 4 of his own letter, chapter 4, verse 8. He says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter learned the importance of love. 
The Lord also wanted to teach Peter self-sacrifice. You remember in John 21, Jesus told Peter that he would have to die for him? Peter learned the principle of self-sacrifice. Look at what he wrote in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Humility is another principle the Lord taught Peter. All through the gospel records, Peter's pride comes through. You know that. You've heard all the jokes about Peter and all the comments that the preachers make about Peter. His pride comes through page after page. But the Lord taught him humility in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, and Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, we have no part with one another. Peter may have been a proud man, but he was also a teachable man. He learned humility. Look at what he wrote in chapter 5 of his letter. Chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This was an important lesson for Peter to learn, humility. Another lesson Peter learned, or needed to learn, and did learn, was the lesson of courage. We read a moment ago that Peter denied the Lord three times because he was afraid to take a stand. But in Acts 5.29, when the Sanhedrin told him to stop preaching, stop talking about Jesus, he replied, we ought to obey God rather than men. It's very easy sometimes for leaders to be intimidated by people into changing their convictions, convictions they know that are true. But Peter learned to stand courageously. Those are just a few of the principles the Lord taught Peter. Jesus took someone with the right qualities, placed him in just the right situations or right life experiences, and taught him the right principles, the right truths. And boy, did Peter ever make a good leader. Boy, did he ever become what Jesus intended him to become, a stone, a rock, solid, firm. In Acts chapter 2, he stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to the Jewish multitude and said, you crucified your Messiah 3,000 were converted. In Acts chapter 3, he healed the lame man. In Acts chapter 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish supreme court. In Acts 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira about their hypocrisy. In Acts 8, he dealt with Simon the magician. In Acts 9, he raised Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 10, he took the gospel to the Gentiles, unlocking the door of the kingdom for the Gentiles. When he went to the household of Cornelius, and in Acts chapter 11, he defended his actions when he was called on the carpet by the Jewish believers who said he should not have gone to the Gentiles. Peter became the leader Jesus wanted him to be. One man has described him this way, quote, The Gospels are literally filled with his name. In fact, Peter's name is literally mentioned in the Gospels more than any name but Jesus. Nobody speaks as often as Peter, and nobody is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so reproved by the Lord as Peter, and no disciple reproves the Lord but Peter. 
No disciple ever so boldly confessed and outspokenly acknowledged the lordship of Christ as Peter, and no one denied it as boldly as Peter. No one is so praised and so blessed as Peter, and no one else is called Satan but Peter. The Lord had harder things to say to Peter than he ever said to anybody else, but that was part of making him the man he wanted him to be, end quote. How did it all end for the Apostle Peter? The unanimous tradition of the early church is that Peter was crucified, just as Jesus said in John 21. Before he was crucified, however, he was forced to watch his wife be crucified. And he kept encouraging her with the words, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Then he was crucified upside down at his request because he said he was not worthy to be crucified the same way his Lord was crucified. How can we sum up Peter's life? We'll skip over to his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and notice one of the final statements he ever penned. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he said, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter didn't just write that, he lived that. There was ever anyone who grew in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Peter. He never stopped growing. And as a result, his life brought much glory to his Lord. Peter was a leader. Peter was a preacher. Peter was a writer. So for the remainder of our time, I want us to do just a quick survey of some of the other passages in his first letter because that will be our focus, Lord willing, for the next several weeks and months. So turn back with me to First Peter for just a brief survey of this letter written by the Apostle Peter. When I mention the fact that Peter was a preacher, I'm reminded of a humorous description someone gave me a while back titled, You Might Be a Preacher If, and here's how it goes. You might be a preacher if you've ever received an anonymous U-Haul gift certificate. You might be a preacher if you've ever wanted to wish people Merry Christmas at Easter because that's the next time you'll see them. You might be a preacher if you can count on your phone ringing the minute you sit down for dinner. You might be a preacher if babies cry while you're talking. You might be a preacher if your sermons have happy endings, that is, Everybody's happy when they end. You might be a preacher if you've ever wanted to trade Brother Know-It-All for a member to be named later. And you might be a preacher if the words and in conclusion mean absolutely nothing to you. Well, maybe some of those things were true of Peter. We don't know, but we do know what he wrote here in 1 Peter. This first letter by the Apostle Peter was written to a group of Christians who were experiencing persecution and difficulty. Those things bring out one of two responses. You can allow it to cause you to grumble, or you can allow it to cause you to grow. To say it another way, you can allow it to cause you to become bitter, or you can allow it to cause you to become better. That's why the Apostle Peter wrote this letter. He was writing to a group of Christians who were in the midst of suffering. 
They had laid hold of the grace of God in salvation. Now they were to lay hold of the grace of God in suffering as he exhorts them in chapter 5, verse 12. And that is why I've outlined this book around the word grace. Here in this letter, Peter expounds on the multifaceted grace of God. He explains the grace of God in salvation. He explains the grace of God in submission. And he explains the grace of God in suffering. It's interesting to note that from chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 9, there is a chain of 34 commands given by Peter. 34 imperatives. Peter exhorts us to lay hold of the grace of God and to live properly. It all begins with an understanding that we are saved by the grace of God. Notice how he opens his letter. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter opens his letter with a reminder to us that salvation is all by the grace of God. It's all according to his abundant mercies, Peter says in verse 3. Salvation is all by the grace of God. And once we have received this salvation, we need to grow in the fullness of it. And that is often called sanctification or progressive sanctification. So from chapter 1, verse 13... To chapter 2, verse 10, Peter speaks to the issue of sanctification. He tells us we should live a life of holiness. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter calls us to live a life of holiness, but he also calls us to live a life of love. Notice verse 22 of this same chapter. He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So we should live lives of holiness. We should live lives of love. We should also live lives of spiritual growth. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We are to live lives of holiness, lives of love, lives of growth, and lives of good works. Chapter 2, uh, verse 12, Peter says this, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, they may, uh, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are to live lives of holiness. We are to live lives of love, lives of spiritual growth, lives of good works. 
As we come to verse 13 of this second chapter, we come to the second major section of the book where Peter elaborates on the grace of God in submission. That's chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 12. In this section, we are taught that it is God's will for us to submit to our government, our superiors, our spouses, and even those who are evil. Notice what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And that leads us this morning to Peter's final section, which is on the grace of God in suffering. That goes from chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 14. The first thing Peter says in this section is that we should expect to suffer since our Lord suffered. And when we do suffer, we should follow our Lord's example. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, that is the same attitude, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When we suffer, we need to focus our attention on submitting to the will of God. And then Peter closes his letter with a series of exhortations to those who are suffering. Let me just give you these as bullet points because Lord willing we'll come back to them in the days ahead. What should we do when we are in the midst of difficulty, suffering? Peter says this. Here's a quick list. He says, pray for one another. That's chapter 4, verse 7. He says, love one another. That's chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, minister to one another. That's chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, glory in God. That's chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. He says, look to your spiritual leaders. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He says, humble yourself. That's chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, cast your care on him. Chapter 5, verse 7. He says, resist the enemy. That's chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, trust God. That's chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Peter's desire for his readers and for us is that we would lay hold of the multifaceted grace of God and stand firm in it. Notice what he says over near the end of his letter in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, by Silvanus, or another name for Silas, Our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So Peter is going to tell us all about the grace of God. Because he closes his letter by saying, this is, this what I've written here, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So if you're excited about grace, if you're eager to learn about God's grace, if you want to grow in God's grace, then you should be excited about our study of 1 Peter. Because it's all about the grace of God in salvation, in sanctification, and in suffering. So I ask you this morning in closing, have you experienced the grace of God in your life? Have you experienced God's saving grace? Secondly, are you standing in God's grace? Living consistent with God's grace? Those are the kinds of questions that the book of 1 Peter forces us to face. 
the kinds of questions that this book will force us to ask in the days ahead, Lord willing. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head and close your eyes in the couple minutes that we have remaining, think about those two questions that we closed with. First of all, have you experienced God's grace in salvation? Have you experienced the transforming grace of God? Is your life different? Have you seen a a, a dramatic change in your life that comes with salvation? If you have not, if you have doubts, if you have questions, I urge you to resolve those this morning, this very moment, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Ask Him to, to forgive you of your sins. Ask Him for His grace, His life-changing grace. Ask Him for His salvation. And if you are a child of God, are you standing in the grace of God? Are you living in the grace of God? Are you living out the grace of God? That's the way we should live if we have experienced the amazing grace of God's salvation. Father, thank You for the life of the Apostle Peter. It gives us encouragement, gives us hope. So we see the way your son, the Lord Jesus, worked with Peter to mold him and shape him and make him into the man he became, the man who wrote this letter that we will be studying, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May you use his life, his writing, his teaching, his his explanation of your grace to have a major impact in our lives in the days ahead. And in closing, we would pray for anyone here in our midst who has not experienced your grace, Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, your Son, in salvation. May they, this very moment, open their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender their lives to him, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, receive his salvation that they might be able to sing with, with understanding for the first time those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning, the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.